You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans, and welcome to a very special combined mega edition of The Exchange and Power Lunch today. An hour from now, the Fed is expected to raise rates by a quarter point, the first rate hike since December of 2018. Some say they're too late. Inflation is at a 40-year high. Others worry they're moving too quickly as global war breaks out. On that note, we will be hearing from the president imminently. We're going to break the Fed's decision. Top of the hour, we're going to take Chair Powell himself about 90 minutes from now. It's going to be a very busy two hours here. Tyler Matheson did travel to Washington for the big day. Hi, Ty. Hey, Kelly. You know, it is a beautiful, we've been blessed with beautiful weather here this late winter afternoon. It is a, a day of high drama in Washington, beginning this morning about five hours ago with President Volodymyr Zelensky's speech to Congress, uh, pleading, plaintive speech, pleading for more help uh, from the United States. And now we get ready in an hour what for investors like you, for the markets, is the day's main event. That is uh, the Fed meeting on interest rates and the verdict on what a kind of monetary policy we are going to embark on now over the next few years. We have the president now speaking from the White House. Uh, let's listen in his response to President Zelensky's speech earlier today. Let's go to the White House. For his Perfect. passionate message this morning. I listened to it in the private residence and uh, he was convincing and significant speech. He speaks for a people who have shown remarkable courage and strength in the face of brutal aggression. Courage and strength that's inspired not only Ukrainians, but the entire world. Putin is inflicting appalling, appalling devastation and horror on Ukraine, bombing apartment buildings, maternity wards, hospitals. I mean, it's, it's god awful. I was speaking about this with the, our, 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 our commander behind me here. General Milley, I mean, it just is amazing. Yesterday, we saw reports that Russian forces were holding hundreds of doctors and patients hostage in the largest hospital in Mariupol. These are atrocities. They're an outrage to the world. And the world is united in our support for Ukraine and our determination to make Putin pay a very heavy price. America is leading this effort together with our allies and partners, providing enormous levels of security and humanitarian assistance that we're adding to today, and we're going to continue to do more in the days and weeks ahead. We're crippling Putin's economy with punishing sanctions. That's going to only grow more painful over time, with the entire NATO and EU behind us and many other countries. What's at stake here are the principles that the United States and the United Nations across the world stand for. It's about freedom. It's about the right of people to determine their own future. It's about making sure Ukraine never, will never be a victory for Putin, no matter what advances he makes on the battlefield. The American people are answering President Zelensky's call for more help, more weapons for Ukraine to defend itself, more tools to fight Russian aggression. And that's what we're doing. In fact, we started our assistance to Ukraine before this war began as they started to do exercises along the Ukrainian border, the Russians, starting in March of last year. We took the threat of Putin invading very seriously, and we acted on it. We sent Ukraine more security assistance last year, $650 million in weapons, including anti-air and anti-armor equipment, before the invasion, more than we had ever provided before. 
So when the invasion began, they already had in their hands the kinds of weapons they needed to counter Russian advances. And once the war started, we immediately rushed $350 million in additional aid to further address their needs. Hundreds of anti-air systems, thousands of anti-tank weapons, transport helicopters, armed patrol boats, and other high-mobility vehicles, radar systems that help track incoming artillery and unmanned drones, secure communications equipment and tactical gear, satellite imagery and, 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 and analysis capacity. And it's clearly helped Ukraine inflict dramatic losses on Russian forces. On Saturday, my administration authorized another $200 million to keep a steady flow of weapons and ammunition moving to Ukraine. Now I'm once again using my presidential authority to activate an additional security assistance to continue to help Ukraine fend off Russia's assault. An additional $800 million in assistance. That brings the total of new U.S. security assistance to Ukraine to $1 billion just this week. These are the large, these are direct transfers of equipment from our Department of Defense to the Ukrainian military to help them as they fight against this invasion. And I thank the Congress for appropriating these funds. This new package on its own is going to provide unprecedented assistance to Ukraine. It includes 800 anti-aircraft systems to make sure the Ukrainian military can continue, to, can continue to stop the planes and helicopters that have been attacking their people and to defend their Ukrainian airspace. And at the request of President Zelensky, we have identified and are helping Ukraine acquire additional longer-range anti-aircraft systems and the munitions for those systems. Our new assistance package also includes 9,000 anti-armor systems. These are portable high high-accuracy high shoulder-mounted missiles that the Ukrainian forces have been using with great effect to destroy invading tanks and armored vehicles. It'll include 7,000 small arms, machine guns, shotguns, grenade launchers to equip the Ukrainians, including the brave women and men who are defending their cities as civilians and they're on the countryside as well. And, we're, and, we, and as well as the ammunition, artillery, and mortar rounds to go with small arms, 20 million rounds in total, 20 million rounds. This will include drones, which, which uh, demonstrates our commitment to sending our most cutting-edge systems to Ukraine for its defense. And we're not doing this alone. Our allies and partners have stepped up to provide significant shipments of security assistance and will continue to help facilitate these deliveries as well. The United States and our allies and partners are fully committed to surging weapons of assistance to the Ukrainians. And more will be coming as we source additional stocks of equipment that, are all, that we're ready to transfer. Now, now I want to be honest with you. This could be a long and difficult battle, but the American people will be steadfast in our support of the people of Ukraine in the face of Putin's immoral, unethical attacks on civilian populations. We are united in our abhorrence of Putin's depraved onslaught, and we're going to continue to have their backs as they fight for their freedom, their democracy, their very survival. And we're going to give Ukraine the arms to fight and defend themselves through all the difficult days ahead. We're going to continue to mobilize humanitarian relief to support people within Ukraine and those who have been forced to flee Ukraine. In just the past few weeks, we provided $300 million in humanitarian assistance to the people in Ukraine and in neighboring countries. Tens of thousands of tons of food, water, medicine, 
and other basic supplies to support the people in need. Our experts on the ground in Poland and Moldova and other neighboring countries are there to make real-time assessments of the rapidly evolving crisis to get urgently needed humanitarian supplies to the people in need when they need it. And we will support Ukraine's economy with direct financial assistance as well. And together with our allies and partners, we will keep up the pressure on Putin's crumbling economy, isolating him on the global stage. That's our goal. Make Putin pay the price, weaken his position, while strengthening the hand of the Ukrainians on the battlefield and at the negotiating table. Together with our allies and partners, we're going to stay the course. And we'll do everything we can to push for and end this tragic, unnecessary war. This is a struggle that pits the appetites of an autocrat against humankind's desire to be free. And let there be no doubt, no uncertainty, no question, America stands with the forces of freedom. We always have and we always will. I thank you all and God bless you. And I'm going to walk over and sign this legislation, sign this bill to allow the drawdown of those materials. And may God protect their young Ukrainians who are out there defending their country. That's President Biden, who just announced a fresh $800 million worth of aid to Ukraine that would include sending drones and 800 anti-aircraft systems. As he signs in the measures for that to take place, let's bring in Kayla Tausche with more this afternoon. Kayla. Kelly, President Biden is essentially greenlighting the delivery of anti-aircraft and anti-armor systems that will help the Ukrainians defend their own skies and defend their own ground, as the U.S. has so far declined the requests from President Zelensky and other Ukrainian officials to enforce a no-fly zone over that country or to block Russia's access to international waterways around the country. President Biden underscoring there the military aid that the country has already received received from the United States roughly $2 billion since the administration uh, took office and $1 billion in just the last week. Notably, Kelly, you heard President Biden there say that this is going to be a long and difficult battle. That illustrates the fact that the administration has a view that even though rhetorically there is some discussion right now of a potential ceasefire agreement between Ukraine and Russia, that the administration has not seen any evidence of de-escalation by the Russians on the ground in Ukraine. And just a few minutes ago, Ukraine's foreign ministry Foreign Minister, rather, Dmytro Kuleba, uh, tweeted that one building, a historic building in Mariupol, was just leveled by Russian forces. So clearly, Kelly, the violence continues uh, and Ukraine is continuing to defend itself as President Biden there uh, says that uh, the, the world is girding for this to be a long and drawn out fight. Kelly. Kayla, thank you very much. Kayla Tausche at the White House. Let's get a check on markets in the meantime, which are off their session highs. The Dow was up more than 500 points earlier. It's just over 200 points right now. The Nasdaq had been up 3%. Uh, it's well off those levels as well, still up about 1.8%. Yields have been moving higher again today, continuing this upward drift all week. The 10-year now around 2.17%. The five-year on its heels, three basis points below that. 186 on the two-year, of course. These are key levels to watch as we wait the Fed's decision top of the hour. On that note, let's send it back to Tyler. All right. Thank you very much, Kelly. Uh, President Biden just announcing that initial 
$800 million in security aid for Ukraine moments ago uh, after President Zelensky addressed Congress this morning in a dramatic and plaintive speech. Joining us now is someone with a front row seat to all of this in Washington, set Democratic Senator Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts. Senator Warren, welcome. Delighted to have you with Good us. To we've, be got with a, you. we've got a lot to cover today. Let's begin with this morning and the speech that President Zelensky gave to Congress. It was dramatic. It was plaintive. You were there. What was your reaction? What was it like there? And did President Zelensky change any minds, including yours, on a no-fly zone? So we went in, I think on both sides, uh, Democrats and Republicans, wanting to support Ukraine. President Zelensky um, showed us the pictures that were just wrenching, pictures that have been shown around the world, pictures that once again demonstrate that Vladimir Putin is willing to commit war crimes right out in public. Um, we want to help Ukraine in every way possible that will be helpful to Ukraine. The president just spoke. He talked about all of the military assistance that we have given them. In addition, we are pouring humanitarian aid in both directly into Ukraine and uh, into the countries that are receiving Ukrainian uh, uh, refugees. And the third thing we're doing is we are putting historic economic sanctions on Russia. And, and I just wanted to pause for a minute to think about that. You know, when, when a, one country invades another and that country's looking for help, a big part of what we think about always in the past is a military response. Everybody suits up and, and goes in and you end up with more direct conflict. Here, the response of NATO countries, other countries around the world and the United States is to put unprecedented economic sanctions, the kind of economic sanctions that will bite into Putin personally, mm -hmm. into the Ru uh, Russian government, and into the oligarchs who help keep Putin propped up. I want to up. come back to sanctions and Good. something that you have said about it, uh, but, but let me just close the loop there. Did Mr. Zelensky change your mind with respect to a no-fly zone or with respect to transferring old MiG fighters actually into the war zone from Germany? You know, I, I think what it was all about was we're all looking for the best way to help Ukraine. And the part I always want to underscore, what President Biden deserves full credit on is that he has not come in and tried to Bigfoot and said this is the United States against Russia. It's that we are working with our allies. And it is powerfully important that the United States and NATO countries and other countries in the region that are non-NATO countries all stay on the same page. And where everyone is right now is giving lots and lots of military and humanitarian aid to help support the Ukrainians, but not go into direct it conflict. Is it is a, a calibrated it response. Absolutely in, in, is. It Let's go back to sanctions here. Mm -hmm. And the question is, are they working? Can they work unless they are accompanied by uh, strict regulations on the trade of cri in cryptocurrency by nations like Russia, Iran, North uh, Korea, and by, by a stringent enforcement of money laundering practices that go on, and we know it, between Russia and Western banks and Western sources every single day. Boy, that question hits the nail right on the head. Look, our economic sanctions are historic. There's never been anything like this to cut off a country like Russia from the entire banking system by, by forcing them out of SWIFT. And that is powerful. 
and it's going to have a profound effect, already it's having a profound effect on the Russian government. But always remember, the Russians are good at this. We know, for example, right now, that about three quarters of the dollars that are going through ransomware, that are being paid off in ransomware, are going through Russia. Russians know how to do this. We know that the North Koreans uh, and others have been able to evade sanctions by using cryptocurrency. So it's important that we, in effect, patch a hole in the bucket uh, and make sure that there's not leakage through crypto, that we don't have, right. you know, these oligarchs who just move around a few hundred million dollars and just keep it out of the formal banking system. And you've system. got some proposals on that, I know, I and we'll be watching that. Let's turn to the Federal Reserve, yes. if we might, because that's why we're here we're in here. that building, yes. uh, the uh, Open Market Committee meeting, apparently in person for the first time in a couple of uh -huh. years. Uh, you oppose Chair Powell's renomination. Uh, you have called him, quote, a dangerous man. Mm -hmm. I will give you credit. You said it straight to his face in a hearing. You bet. Why are you so strenuously opposed to him, number one? And number two, apart from that opposition, how do you grade his professor, his stewardship of the economy? So my concern starts with the fact that the Fed has two responsibilities. One is monetary policy. We're going to see what happens with uh, raising interest rates today. But the second is regulation. And failure to pay attention to regulation really can put our economy at risk. How do I know that? It happened back in the early 2000s, and we saw the consequences with the crash of 2008, which, remember, the pain for that was felt across this country and around the world. How many millions of people lost their homes, lost their jobs, lost their savings, lost their retirements. So it's important to have a Fed and a Fed chair who is diligent about both jobs. Chair Powell has worked on many regulations during his last five years as chair of the Federal Reserve, and always his tilt is in the direction of, let's deregulate, just a little. And it's not a, sometimes he regulates a little more, sometimes he tightens down, sometimes he loosens up. It's been loosen up, loosen up, loosen up, loosen up. And you know, it's like, it's like a ship. You just move it a little bit, and then you move it a little bit more. If you keep moving it in the same direction, after a while, you've made a profound change. And that change is one that puts our overall financial system at a risk. So I judge his five, first five years as failing, not because we've hit the economic crash that that can cause, but because it has shown a tilt in the direction over and over and over of loosening oversights over our financial So let's stick with, federal, with, sure. with regulation. And mm -hmm. yesterday, Sarah Bloom Raskin yep. uh, withdrew her nomination to be the vice chair in charge of regulation. You supported Ms. Raskin. How do you feel about that withdrawal, number one? I assume you're disappointed by it. And number two, would you like to see Richard Cordray, the former head of the uh, Consumer Finance well, Protection Bureau, be nominated uh, in a successor role? So let me start with number one, and that is, no, I'm not disappointed, I'm outraged. And I'm outraged because this particular nomination was brought down by the oil industry. Sarah Bloom Raskin, uh, said basically the same things about climate that Jerome Powell has said, but there's a difference. Sarah Raskin actually understands regulation, is willing to use it, and really called it like it is. She said that increasing problems in climate and the climate crisis 
can actually threaten both our financial system and our economy, and the Fed needs to take account of that. She was right. The oil industry spent big bucks to bring her down, and yesterday they succeeded. That is bad for Sarah Bloom Raskin, bad for our economy, but it is also bad for the Fed, and it is bad for our nation. No one and certainly not an interest outside the financial system, an interest that just says we want to protect big oil, should have that kind of power. Let me ask you a kind of out of left field question sure. regarding that. And that is her husband, Jamie Raskin, was the lead presenter of the House's uh, uh, impeachment case against President Trump. Do you think that that, a score evening, had anything to do with this? I sure hope not. Um, you know, there is. There is so much that stinks around bringing her down that I hope that was not part of it, but I have no way to know. Let me turn to the economy, and I'm going to assume you just said that uh, Chair Powell's first five years have been a failure, and I sense then that you, you, you do not separate his position on regulation from his stewardship of the economy, that you can't separate the two. But, but what about the monetary policy? So, Has it been adequate in your view or so not? So I think monetary policy, look, I think that easy money has uh, been a real boon to Wall Street, uh, but we have also had a strong economy and we have built a strong economy. I think the role of government last year uh, when we put more money in as part of the American Rescue Plan uh, so that we could get schools open again, so we could get vaccines around the country, I think all of those have helped build the economy and I think that's strong, but here's the part that I just keep underscoring. Yes, we can look at monetary policy and see its effect right now today. And we can play it out over what we expect to happen over the next three weeks or the next three months. But the part about failing to attend to the regulations, they're intricate, they're technical, they're not very newsworthy. But failing to attend to them, we watched what 10 years of failing to attend to them did to us last time around. And it brought down our entire economy. We can't run those kinds of risks again. It's important to pay attention to both. And that's the standard to which I hold the chair of the Let's Federal Reserve. Let's turn to inflation, which is affecting your constituents yeah. in Massachusetts and everyone around the, uh, around the country. My simple question to you is what causes it? And if I were to read a lot of what you've said and written, uh, I would leap to the conclusion that you think the primary cause of it is corporate greed, whether it's the oil companies, whether it's software companies, whether it's food processing companies, what causes inflation? So I think the primary cause of this bout of price increases starts with COVID and the fact that we have supply chain kinks and uh, that people rapidly shifted the demand curve so that uh, demand for services went down and demand for goods went up. Uh, so those two have forced prices up, that's part one. But what has also happened is that now that we live in an America where there's a lot more concentration in certain industries, look at the oil industry, look at uh, meat industry, look at groceries generally, that what's happened is these companies have said, you know, we'll pass along costs, but while we're at it and everyone's talking about rising costs, let's just add an extra big dollop of cost increases to expand our profits. Think about it this way. If all that was happening was that we have problems in the supply chain, so we're passing those costs along, margins, profit margins, should have stayed about the same percentage, right? They might have even shrunk a little tiny bit. 
not happening. Those margins are increasing and they're increasing the most where we see lots of corporate concentration. So part one, yes, very much the pandemic. Part two, companies that recognize that because they don't face a lot of competition can goose those prices up. They're saying it on their shareholder calls. They are saying to the to their investors, we're raising prices, as Jerome Powell said to me in a hearing, because they can. Because they can. Let, let me go Let me go to the question of a, a windfall profits tax sure. on oil companies, which you have uh, gotten behind, as have several other mm-hmm. uh, senators and, and, other, and other members. There are lots of numbers out there, and people can manipulate numbers. Yes, I've uh, heard that. <laughs> so my numbers that I was looking at this morning are that, that the cost of crude has doubled uh, since pre-pandemic, if you go up to where it was a couple of weeks ago, from the mid-60s to 120. It has doubled. But the price of a gallon of gasoline has not yet doubled, even though it has gone up more than a dollar in a year. So one could make the argument that, in truth, the oil companies have left some pricing power on the table. If their crude has doubled, but the price of gas hasn't, are they gouging? So, you know, actually, I want to add to that, you know, they made, what was it, $205 billion in profits last year. So I'm sure if they left any profits on the table, it was by mistake. Uh, but, but look at what's happened on the price of crude now. Price of crude has gone way up. Prices immediately responded. Price of crude has come back down. And gosh, price at the pump has not come down in the same way. Well, it's like what banks do when when rates go up. <laughs> yeah, they raise rates, ready, but they don't bring them back down quite the same way. They're not ready on the on the downslope. Got you there. I'm, yeah, I'm with you on that. Yeah, and that's the trick here. Yeah. And much of this happens. I want to go back though to the structural problem. It's the structural problem around this is there's not enough competition. I believe in markets, mm-hmm. where we have competitive markets then no one can afford to price gouge. The reason we're looking at a windfall profits tax, and remember, windfall profits is measured by, not by just an across the board tax, it's a tax on a jump, on a jump in the profits, the from, the average, from the average. That's exactly right. Let me right. close quickly, if sure. I might, they're telling me we're, we've, it's been a fascinating conversation, I've, I've enjoyed every minute of it. You have introduced legislation that would ban stock ownership for yes. members of Congress. Uh, that and, and following a pattern that we follow at CNBC for on-air and yep. production people. Uh, you'd have to invest in ETFs or mutual right. funds. Do you think it has a chance to pass? Yes. Why? Because it is right and because people around this country have, have lost faith in much of what Congress does. And this is one small way we can begin to say, we get it. We are going to get rid of these conflicts. We're going to make sure that when we're making decisions, the American public can know that we are putting the interests of the public first and not the interests of our own finances. I've got the only, I've got two things about this bill that give me uh, enthusiasm. One, I have the only bipartisan bill out there. Senator Daines and I are leading it. That's Mm -hmm. right. Mm -hmm. And the second is, it's the toughest bill out there. It's no playing around with it. It says no stock ownership, no stock trading for the member, for the member's spouse, we're done. It's easy, we need to get and this no done. And no blind trust either. No blind trust. No blind trust either. Done. Senator Warren, thank you for that comprehensive conversation. Thank you, we appreciate good to it. see you. Thank you, good to see you, thank you for coming out. And uh, again, our thanks to Senator Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts. Kelly? 
Tyler, thank you. Let's bring in our Fed panel now. Stephen Whiting is standing by. He's the chief investment strategist at City Global Wealth Management. Subhadra Rajapa is head of U.S. rate strategy at Society General. And Julia Coronado is founder of Macro Policy Perspectives. It's great to have you all here. And it's been a pretty wild market, Steve, the last day or so. Um, what do you make of it? Are, are we buying the rumor and about to sell the fact? Should we attribute this more to some relief investors are feeling over the Russia-Ukraine situation at the moment. Um, There's been an incredible whipsaw move in Chinese tech stocks. How do you make sense of it all? Kelly, was that for me? Yes, go ahead, sir. Okay, all right. Well, look, um, I think we spent most of this year in apprehension about Fed policy. And at periods like this, we can have a good relief uh, before or after all of that apprehension. It doesn't change the fact that monetary policy tightening uh, will alter the environment for investing and for the economy going forward. I would also just point to the fact that this has been a higher volatility environment. Um, We're facing very large external issues that are driving the economy uh, and markets compared to the usual uh, amount. And in this kind of vol environment, um, I wouldn't take too much uh, from one two-day moves in either direction uh, as being decisive in terms of turning the market. So, Subhadra, let me ask you about the sort of word of caution Larry Summers published in The Washington Post last night, where he says the Fed is going to lead us into stagflation and a recession. Uh, How do we avoid that outcome? And do you agree with him that that's a major risk right now? It's absolutely a major risk in the economy, although it seems unlikely that we'll go into into an actual stagflationary environment. The curve seems to be communicating exactly that, the front end of the curve. Uh, you know, two yields are, are up quite dramatically. And then you have the two stents part of the curve uh, flattening out. We got to as flat as 21 basis points in the two stents part of the curve. So that's the market basically saying that they're concerned about a stagflationary type environment because the Fed's going to have to respond to inflation by raising rates aggressively. Aggressively, That's going to push, you know, two-year yields higher. But the back end or the 10-year yields are not really responding to the potential for higher growth over the longer run. So that's that's what the market's pricing in. I don't think that that's our base case scenario. I think that growth is going to be somewhat robust for this year. The question is what happens and how short the cycle uh, ends up to be when the Fed's all uh, setting down with rate hikes. Yeah, Julia, a lot of the you know, rhetoric is focused on how many hikes you know should we and can we have right now. And Larry's point is really that the Fed is way behind the curve and they shouldn't be trying to run this experiment of letting inflation go hot for a while and it's okay if it, and expectations become unanchored. And he said the Fed is supposed to take the punch bowl away before you know everybody gets drunk. Well, I mean, I think we need to look at the curve that Subhadra just referenced. It's not like they haven't, the pivot has been priced in. It's not like the Fed is, while they are at zero right now, effectively they've already lifted off because the market is pricing in a whole series of rate hikes. And in fact, that has been successful in tightening financial conditions and re-injecting some risk premia. Uh, And so we've seen that over the last couple of months. So I I don't think it's the right uh, way to frame it. Markets are forward looking. They're pricing in a series of rate hikes. That's exactly what Chair Powell and the FOMC are gonna communicate to us today, that this is the beginning of a series of rate hikes And that's already priced in. So I I think the Fed has already effectively lifted off. Um, And we know from our clients that they're very closely also watching what they have to say, what what Chair Powell and the FOMC have to say on balance sheet policy. That's another front of tightening. So I think the Fed is already putting a, a plan in action. I think it's sort of 
silly to say that. And now, now is it the right plan? That's that's the question. And I think what Chair Powell will say is they can do more, they can do less. There's a lot of uncertainty, so they're going to follow the data. Steve, last question to you, and I'm sorry we don't have more time, guys. But hawkish or dovish hike? What would what are you sniffing out there? Well, look, I think uh, very hopefully they're going to at least give us some confidence that they're not giving up on this expansion. A lot has changed. Federal spending is down 22 percent in the year to date. They're going to talk about uh, a large series of rate hikes, quantitative tightening. Look at last year. We've never been able to stabilize inflation in periods of war or shocks like COVID. Uh, I would hope uh, they're going to recognize that they can't control everything. Uh, and this will not be a year of on-target inflation. All right. Uh, we'll leave it there, guys. We really appreciate it. Stephen Whiting, Subhadra Rajapa, Julia Coronado joining us with less than half an hour until the rate hike that we're expecting. It's not so much that hike that matters, though. It's how many hikes total we'll get from the Fed this year. According to our latest CNBC Fed survey, 16 percent of respondents expect two or three rate hikes. About 35 percent expect four and nearly half expect between five and seven. My next guest falls in the latter camp. He was the first to call for seven hikes in 2022, and he's sticking with that prediction. Let's welcome in Ethan Harris, head of global economics for Bank of America Securities. Ethan, it's good to see you. And a hike a meeting. Why is this still uh, something sort of a tightening campaign that you think should last for quite some time and not be phased by anything from the Ukraine war to the sort of, um, you know, weaker than uh, anticipated retail sales report this morning to everyone's concern about a slowing economy? Well, let's be serious here. I mean, what central bank would have a zero funds rate with an 8% inflation rate and an unemployment rate dropping as fast as the U.S.? Instead of talking about rate hikes in the last few months, the Fed should have started the rate hikes. I don't understand what they're waiting for. So they are behind the curve. And I think that the way this Fed will act to catch up is to do it in a very choreographed, careful fashion. And so the easiest path for the Fed going forward is to hike 25 basis points at each meeting. Then from the market's perspective, it becomes kind of an ongoing process. There aren't a series of shocks. It's just a continuation of what they started. I also think from a political point of view, uh, it's easier for the Fed to be on a regular diet of rate hikes rather than vacillating back and forth between hiking and pausing going into an election. They don't want to look like they're pausing or speeding up around the election. They want to look like they're on a path of regular hikes. So I think it makes a lot of sense for them to hike at every meeting until they get a much more clarity about whether inflation's coming down or not. And Ethan, for, so obviously you're more in the camp of expecting a hawkish hike here. Explain what else that could look like with everything from the projections to the rhetoric that Chair Powell uses next hour. Well, they have to revise all their forecasts. Uh, you know, things have changed a lot since December. They've got a very low inflation number. They've got only three hikes penciled in for this year. Um, I'd be amazed if they only hike three times this year. Uh, so they've got to raise those numbers. The unemployment forecast they have is also stale. They're saying that the unemployment rate, which has been dropping, it's dropped almost one and a half percent in the last six months. In their forecast, it suddenly levels off. It only drops from 3.8 to 3.5% over the course of the whole rest of this year. So they need to lower their unemployment rate forecast as well. So the, the revisions to their uh, growth inflation and Fed call uh, or uh, forward guidance has to be significant. 
On the other hand, I do want to point out uh, the markets have this misconception that the Fed wants to go fast out of the gate and then slow down later. And I don't think that's consistent with their message. <laughs> the markets are still pricing in a good chance of a 50 basis point hike at one of the next two meetings. I don't think they're going to do that. They're going to start at 25 and then think about 50 later. Oh, interesting. So start slow and then maybe pick up momentum, especially if we get some clarity on geopolitical events and otherwise. Ethan, great to have you on. Appreciate the words of, I wouldn't say warning, uh, just some context around the headlines we might be getting. Thank you again. Ethan Harris Thank from you. Bank of America. After a quick break, we'll talk about the real world impact of rate hikes on mortgages, on car loans, savings rates, you name it. We'll show you exactly what happens after the Fed hikes and what doesn't. We're back in a moment. Welcome back, everybody. If you've been wondering, here's actually what will happen across the economy after the Fed raises rates as they're expected to in just about half an hour's time. First up, let's start with savings rates. Those rates are directly tied to the Fed funds rate. They've been low for years now, obviously. But even as the Fed starts to hike, there are few incentives for banks to get a lot more generous with their payouts right now. They're sitting on piles of cash. They don't need to learn deposits. So you can expect a little bump in your savings rates, but a little one for now, maybe. Let's move on now to auto loans. And the key rate here, not the Fed funds rate that's about to go up, it's the five-year Treasury yield. That's already moved up sharply over the past year, so borrowing rates have been on the rise. Hasn't done much yet to dent new and used car prices, which are still sky high. But if the five-year keeps rising, and that's the key, it could put more pressure on the auto market in the months ahead, which is kind of the Fed's goal right now. Finally, on to housing. The key rate here is actually the 10-year Treasury. Again, that's already been on a big upswing. That's what mortgage rates price off of. They've already jumped a lot. Won't affect your fixed-rate mortgage does affect adjustable rate mortgages, and maybe not the worst thing if it puts downward pressure on prices. But that all depends on whether long-term yields keep rising from here. Diana Olick joins us now in Washington with more details. Diana? Well, thank you very much, Kelly. I'll pick it up from there. It's always good to be with you, Diana. You Hi, well. Di. I can Hi. say in person. Hi, Ty. All right. Let's talk a little bit about how rising interest rates, whether rising interest rates, might take some of the steam out of price increases for housing. Well, prices traditionally, historically, will lag sales by six months. So when you look at sales right now and you look at rising mortgage rates, they're taking away from purchasing power. You're seeing about 200 bucks a month more on an average $400,000 home on that monthly payment. So people buy that monthly payment. So if we start to see sales drop, which we haven't seen significantly yet, but if we start to see the sales pull back, prices should be about six months behind that. But again, this is a weird market. There is so much demand and so little supply that it's going to take a lot for prices for, to ease. For the for the pace of sales to slow, the prices to come down. We did hear yesterday from a bank, Banker Valley Bank, uh, who said uh, refis have fallen dramatically. Let's talk about stocks, home builder stocks specifically. Well, they always get hit emotionally, especially by rising mortgage rates. But the builders themselves, you know, we got the home builder sentiment numbers out today. And what was so interesting was that there wasn't a big drop in the current sales conditions or the buyer traffic, but there was this massive drop in sales expectations over the next six months. So the builders, they're a little freaked out that these rising rates are going to hit sales in the next six months. But what you hear out there today from builders is there's still strong demand. So the stocks may be pulling back because of rising rates, but the fundamental on the sales, and we'll get Lennar later today and we'll see, they still seem to be pretty strong. Quick final, inflation, does it help house, house prices or hurt them? 
Well, it hurts them a bit because anybody who's trying to put anything into their house is seeing much higher costs, whether it's renovation, whether they're furnishing, anything like that. So again, that pulls back from what people can spend. So some owners would like to see the Fed raise interest yes, rates and retard would. inflation. Diana, great as always to see you. Thanks. Kelly, back to you. And I thank you. Less than 20 minutes until the Fed decision and another big market day. In the meantime, let's check on the Dow. It was up 532 at the highs. It's up 230 points right now, and it's the laggard. The S&P is up 1.1 percent and the Nasdaq is still up more than 2 percent. It was up 3 percent earlier on. Now, a volatile session again for crude. It settled below $100 a barrel yesterday, uh, down 12 percent since Monday. Today, down fractionally to about 95 and change. The 10-year yield, and this, of course, we're watching closely, hitting its highest level in nearly three years ahead of the Fed decision. The 10-year, remember, is the key rate that mortgages price off of. Uh, it's not so much the Fed's rate hike. It's going to be how this longer end of the curve responds to those hikes, what it thinks the Fed is implying about future hikes, the strength of the economy, inflation, all the rest of it. So here's a check with about 18 minutes to go, 2.187%. There's the 30-year, almost 2.5%. All right, let's drill down on what the market is doing right now and what investors uh, want to hear at the top of the hour from Fed Chair Powell and then at the bottom of the 2 p.m. hour uh, when he addresses uh, the press and takes questions. With us now, Jamie Cox, managing partner at Harris Financial Group and Ivory Johnson, founder of Delancey Wealth Management. Welcome back, guys. Thanks we know how to plan the good weather, don't we? Last Absolutely. time we were together in December Perfect. was like this, and, and here we are lucky enough again. What do you expect to hear from the Fed? I think everybody has baked in this idea of a, of a quarter point rate hike. Uh, how many do you expect this year? What do you expect to hear from the Fed? I think we all know today is 25 basis points, but the big question is how many more? So I think that the Fed is probably with its six, you know, six rate hikes into this year, I don't think they're going to be able to do it. I think it's going to be very difficult for them to raise rates into an economy that's slowing. You have inflation is taking a a bite out of consumers' pocketbooks, you have higher energy prices, it's going to be very difficult for the Fed to continually raise interest rates throughout this year. But they could flip over and start with balance sheet reduction, which actually might be more effective than raising rates. Might that be less painful? I think so. To the economy? To I think investors? so. I think, uh, you know, the money supply increased so much over the past couple of years that reducing the balance sheet actually is probably going to be more effective. You're going to have, you know, the, the interest rate environment adding you know, interest rates, you know, rising rates through rents or mortgages or anything like that on consumer balance sheets at this point is not a good idea. So you're in the camp who says the economy is more vulnerable than lots of people give it credit for, yes. uh, than, than most people think, and therefore, under all the pressures the Fed faces, they may not go uh, with a rate hike every time. Re rejoinder to that, uh, Ivory. Yeah, yeah I, I think 25 basis points is what we'll see. Uh, they're pricing in six or seven rate hikes, um, if you look at the, the two years, but it's already happened, right? So the two-year yields already gone up a little bit. I don't see how they raise it more than two times. To your point about you know, the economic slowdown, I don't think investors have fully priced in um, the deceleration in GDP growth. Just to give you an example, $1.3 trillion in federal spending is going away. That's 6% of our GDP. And so to paraphrase a local poet, you know, Powell's trying to thread a needle as narrow as gun barrels because he's trying to cut back on the inflation, even though we do have disinflation while the economy is decelerating. So let's talk a little bit. One final question for both of you. Where do you think inflation is heading? And, and is there any chance that this year we see it back at the Fed's long-term target of 2%? Ivory? I think those odds are very low. 
I don't think it'll be anywhere near the 8% year-over-year rates. If you look at, we're not going to have a duplication of the rents going up the way they were, or energy prices going up the way they were, but certainly not at the same rate that we saw in the last year. Where's inflation heading? Let's not forget this is an election year. You're like to, likely to see Congress change. If Congress changes government spending, which is already dis declining and decelerating, going to grind to a halt. So you're going to have a disinflationary pressure going into next year. So I just think it's going to be very difficult for the Fed to raise rates into right. that environment too much. Jamie Cox, Ivor Johnson, thanks. Thank we'll you. be back with you later. Back to you, Kelly. All right, Tyler, thanks. Up next, with less than 15 minutes to go, the case against Chair Powell giving any indication of the Fed's next moves. We're back in just a moment. We've got about 10 minutes to perhaps uh, the most consequential uh, and highly telegraphed hike uh, in recent memory. So our investors focused on any signs of uncertainty or hesitation in Chair Powell's remarks. Uh, let's talk now with David Wessel, Brookings Institution, senior fellow in economic studies. Let's talk about the economy and we're going to see what is known as, I hate to say it, the dot plot. Uh, do you, how low, much lower do you think the forecast on economic growth may be and how much higher do you think the forecast on inflation, maybe. Well, I think the problem they have is that they probably put in their dots before we got the latest data. So I think not low enough on growth and not high enough on inflation. The most interesting thing is that I looked in the December meeting, the most aggressive member of the FOMC was predicting interest rates at the end of this year at 1.1%. And that just tells you how much thinking has changed in the past few months. In the past few months. Let's talk about the dual mandate. On the one hand, low unemployment. Unemployment looks like it's going very low. And uh, growth of the economy and fighting inflation, stable prices. Where is Chair Powell now on that poll? I think uh, Chair Powell has basically said we're at full employment or pretty damn close to it. We're not at price stability. But what it was complicated enough before Ukraine but the latest forecasts for first quarter GDP growth are less than 1% at an annual rate. So he has to worry about sounding forceful about inflation. He needs to reinforce the message that the Fed will do what it takes to bring inflation down to towards its 2% target, which they're not going to so make So that's his main the, front in this war right now. But secondly, he has to be careful not to lock himself in because we don't know what's going to happen with the economy. We don't know what's going to happen with Ukraine. And if there's a deterioration of the economy, he doesn't want to have backed himself into a corner. So this is a more unusual press conference than most. He has to send a clear message that he's there on the inflation battle, but not lock himself into raising interest rates six or seven times this year, because when he looks into the Fed's crystal ball, as cloudy as it is, he can't see it. How does the war in Ukraine change everything? It reduces the outlook for growth in the U.S., Rising energy prices are like tapping the brakes, but it it's also a tax. it is it's a tax, but it also increases the inflation rate. And although standard central bank thinking is you don't need to tighten when you have a supply shock, the Fed now has to worry that these persistently bad inflation numbers will change inflation psychology, will build in inflation expectations, and that's really what they want to avoid. When Chair Powell talked about this new framework. He kept talking about it's important to keep inflation expectations, in the words of central bankers, anchored. And there is a risk that they're becoming unanchored. Now. We've got a little time left. I want to pivot to China. Uh, the shutdowns, uh, major case counts rising on COVID in Hong Kong, Shenzhen uh, areas have been shut down. How does that affect the global economy and the U.S. economy? 
badly. Yeah. Um, we know that we have supply chain constraints. We have demand pushing up against supply. That's why we have inflation. The shutdown of Shenzhen alone is going to mean more constraints on supply just at the time we have revival of demand in the U.S. David Wessel, thank you very much for being with us. Always good to see you, sir. You're welcome. Fantastic. All right, uh, Kelly, back to you. Now he's got me digging through the December dots. <laughs> that does it for The Exchange, everybody. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.